Jonathan Edwards said, Seek not to grow in knowledge chiefly for the sake of applause and to enable you to dispute with others, but seek it for the benefit of your souls. The Enlightenment paved the way for the American Revolution. It showed the American colonists that they have natural rights that cannot be trampled by a tyrannical king. But American independence could never have been possible without the Great Awakening. Welcome to the Historical USA podcast. In this first season, we travel the road to revolution and discuss the people, places, and events that caused the American Revolution. Please consider subscribing and following this podcast. Also, click the bell so that you will be notified when a new episode is uploaded and when we go live for History Hour every other week. History Hour is a series that we do live here on Historical USA. We talk to your favorite history content creators, authors, and historians. Please help this podcast grow by sharing with a friend. In the last episode, we discussed the Enlightenment, the social contract and natural rights. We discussed philosophers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. We also mentioned some of the French philosophes like Voltaire, Rousseau, and Montesquieu. The Enlightenment was a time of social reform. It was a change in ideas and showed the dissatisfied American colonists that they have power. Not a tyrannical parliament and monarchy, but it is not the Enlightenment alone that will cause a change in ideas. The Great Awakening will be a rise in religious revival, theology, and religious tolerance, unifying the American colonies and paving the way for American independence. As I mentioned in the last podcast episode, I emphasized that there were 156 years from the landing at Plymouth Rock to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Today, we celebrate the pilgrims fleeing religious persecution in England, arriving in the New World, and establishing a settlement where they can practice their religion freely. But 156 years is a long time, and the Puritans were not the only ones to settle in the British colonies. True, the church played a big role in communities throughout the colonies, but after a century, the emphasis on faith and religion had changed. The colonies were becoming wealthy. People were settling here to get a piece of the pie, a plot of land to call their own, and many settled here seeking comfort and wealth. They weren't as concerned with advancing the kingdom of God as their parents or their grandparents were. They were in a sense growing more and more spiritually stagnant. The Enlightenment, too, was becoming more popular among the educated class, those that could attend university. As the Enlightenment gained traction and acceptance, so did the rise of deism. Today, there are many intellectuals and academics that like to say that many of our founding fathers were not religious, they were deists. So what is deism, and what does it mean to be a deist? Well, indulge my elementary way of presenting you with this, but 
Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines deism as a movement or system of thought advocating nature, religion, emphasizing morality, and in the 18th century denying the interference of the creator with the laws of the universe. Explaining further, belief in God based on reason rather than revelation, or the teaching of any specific religion, is known as deism. The word originated in England in the early 17th century as a rejection of Orthodox Christianity. Deists asserted that reason could find evidence of God in nature and that God had created the world and then left it to operate under the natural laws devised by God. By the late 18th century, deism was the dominant religious attitude among Europe's educated classes. It was accepted by many upper-class Americans of the same era, including the first three U.S. presidents. Now, I must confess, I do take some exception to Webster's Dictionary here when they claim that the first three United States presidents were deists. There is actually no evidence to support that George Washington was a deist. There were some that made the assumption that Washington was, but he certainly never called himself one. He was Anglican and frequently attended church. Now, his attendance waned after the Revolution, and he does not take communion as much as he did before he became president. This is mostly because after the war, Americans were no longer subjects of the British crown, and the Anglican church could no longer swear allegiance to King George III as head of that church. So instead, they formed the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. George Washington had tremendous faith. Many books have been written about Washington's faith, and the claim that Washington was a deist just does not shake out. Now, this claim that Washington was a deist probably comes from Washington's lack of mentioning Jesus or God, and instead opting to use the word providence when discussing the God of his faith. He also liked to use the author of our blessed religion and many different references to God in his writings. It is also a stretch to claim that John Adams was a deist. Adams was raised in a strong Congregationalist home. His ancestors were Puritans. David McAuliffe in his book John Adams writes, as his family and friends knew, Adams was both a devout Christian and an independent thinker. Deists assert that reason could find evidence of God in nature and that God had created the world and then left it to operate under the natural laws. This is in contradiction to Adams' belief in miracles, in providence, and biblical revelation. Historian David L. Holmes writes, quote, that John Adams' beginning as a Congregationalist ended his days as a Christian Unitarian, accepting central tenets of the Unitarian Creed, but also accepting Jesus as the Redeemer of humanity and the biblical accounts of his miracles as true. In 1796, John Adams denounces Thomas Paine's criticism of Christianity in his book, The Age of Reason. Adams wrote, quote, The Christian religion is above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed in ancient or modern times. The religion of wisdom, virtue, equality, and humanity. Let the blackguard Paine say what he will. That doesn't sound like the remarks of a deist. 
I would also say to call Thomas Jefferson a deist is a bit of a stretch. Jefferson was a theist. Theism is the belief that at least one God exists and that he or they created the universe and governs it. Deism believes that God created the world and left it alone to its own devices. Like the man himself, Thomas Jefferson had a complicated view of Christianity. He denounced things like the Trinity, Jesus' divinity, biblical miracles, the resurrection, the atonement, and original sin. He would not be considered Christian, at least by today's or the 18th century standards. But he believed in prayer, and he often prayed publicly. In his second inaugural address, he even includes prayer, saying, quote, I shall need to the favor of the being in whose hands we are, who led our forefathers as Israel of old from their native land and planted them in a country flowing with all the necessaries and comforts of life, who has covered our infancy with his providence and our riper years with his wisdom and power, and to whose goodness I ask you to join me in the supplications that he will so enlighten the minds of our servants, guide our counsels, and prosper their measures, that whatsoever they do shall result in your good, and shall secure to you the peace, friendship, and appropriation of all nations. He denounced atheism and frequently attended churches of many different denominations. I believe that Jefferson's openness to other faiths played a foundational role in establishing religious freedom in America. Now, I am not a theologist, but I think that the rise in progressive historians making this claim that many of the founders were deist and not overtly religious is not an accurate assumption. I will post a list of books on the founders' faith if that is something you are interested in reading on my website, www.historicalus.com. It seems to me that the first three presidents were influenced not only by the Enlightenment, but the religious revivals of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening is an interesting event in American history. It takes place around the 1720s and 30s and lasts till the 1770s. It is an age of revitalization of religious faith and piety. This is an event that will almost singularly impact England, Scotland, parts of Germany, and the American colonies. It is not like the Enlightenment, which will affect the entirety of Western civilization. It is a movement that will impact mostly Protestant communities. The Americans were settled by Protestants. Sure, there were a few Jewish communities and a small number of Catholics, and many who were not religious at all. But many of the colonies were settled by communities of Protestant faith. The Great Awakening saw a rise in many preachers spreading a message that being truly religious meant repenting, confessing sin, and dedicating oneself to God. The movement was well received in Europe, but it was even more popular in the American colonies. Tens of thousands of non-religious colonists were persuaded to convert to Protestantism. Like the Enlightenment, the Great Awakening changed how people perceived cultures, beliefs, and old ideas. Both movements professed more freedom and more independence of thought, and both rebelled against the established authority. There are several preachers fueling the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitefield, the Wesley brothers, and Gilbert and William Tennant. William Tennant was a Scottish-born immigrant to the American colonies, settling in Pennsylvania in 1718. 
He was a Presbyterian minister and became a driving force for the Great Awakening. He established the Log College in 1727. Now, the Log College was the precursor to the College of New Jersey, which would become Princeton University. William Tennant would teach a generation of young pupils that will become some of the most influential revivalist preachers of the Great Awakening. Many of these preachers would go on and teach in schools, leaving an impression on many founders during their formative years. For example, George Reed, John Dickinson, Thomas McKean, Benjamin Rush, and others would greatly be influenced by revivalist preachers. One of these preachers was his own son, Gilbert Tennant. Tennant was an enthusiastic and stirring preacher. His sermons led many to conversion and holy living. Tennant would travel New England holding revivals, and when many conservative preachers were against these fiery revivals, Tennant defended his work. His most popular sermon, On the Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, compared modern anti-revivalist ministers to the biblical Pharisees described in the Gospels, causing a 17-year split in the colonial Presbyterian church, labeled the Old Side, New Side controversy. Tennant was also inspired by the touring of another revivalist preacher, George Whitefield. Although ordained in the Church of England, Whitefield later partnered up with other Anglican religious leaders who shared his evangelical views, most notably John and Charles Wesley. Together they led a movement to reform the Church of England, much like the Puritans had done before them, which resulted in the establishment of the Methodist Church late in the 18th century. Whitefield made many trips to the American colonies in the 1740s, traveling up and down the 13 colonies preaching. He became so popular that people would come from miles around to listen to him. It wasn't that the ideas were new. Many had preached Calvinist ideas like Whitefield for centuries, preaching that sinful men and women were totally dependent for salvation on the mercy of a pure, all-powerful God. Whitefield spoke with great passion and emotion, dramatically calling on those who came to see him to repent, thundering out sermons of hellfire and brimstone, weeping dramatically, turning a mundane sermon almost into a theatrical performance. This style of preaching would leave a lasting impression on many founders. Patrick Henry's mother would bring him to some of these revivals, and you can see some of Henry's most fiery speeches emulating the passion and fervor of many revivalist preachers like Whitefield. Henry would impassionately cry, if this is treason, make the most of it, and give me liberty or give me death inspiring many to join the American cause. Now, Benjamin Franklin, who was a true deist, supported Whitefield. Franklin decided to attend a revival meeting in Philadelphia and was awestruck by Whitefield's ability to speak to such a large crowd, like tens of thousands of people. Franklin admired Whitefield as a fellow intellectual, even though he did not agree with his religious beliefs. Franklin even entered into a partnership with Whitefield. He published several of Whitefield's sermons and journals and was impressed by Whitefield's ability to preach to many different denominations. Franklin wrote in his memoir, a wonderful change soon made in the manner of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if 
all the world were growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Franklin, though not religious himself, strongly believed that religion was important to a free society and did everything he could to advance Whitefield's work and the Great Awakening, writing, quote, If men are so wicked as we now see them with religion, what would they be without it? The first time I heard of Jonathan Edwards was in my high school English class. My teacher had us read Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is the most famous work from the Great Awakening, emphasizing God's wrath on non-believers after death by delivering them to a very terrifying and fiery hell. The core argument is that God had provided individuals with the opportunity to confess their sins. According to Edwards, it is only God's will that keeps wicked men from being conquered by the devil and his demons and cast into the furnace of hell. With his sermons on justification of faith, Jonathan Edwards sparked a spiritual awakening in his own congregation in 1734 that eventually resulted in about 30 new converts per week. Though the effects of his sermons on his audience could be very emotional, Edwards reached his listeners through reason rather than sermons infused with overt emotion. Edwards would go on to play a significant role as the president of Princeton University. The religious climate in the American colonies was significantly changed because of the Great Awakening. Regular individuals were urged to establish a close relationship with God, rather than having to depend on the minister. Newer denominations grew quickly, such as Methodists and Baptists. Many historians contend that by promoting ideas of nationalism and individual rights, the Great Awakening had an impact on the Revolutionary War. These ideas, along with other Christian beliefs, fueled the eventual Bill of Rights and the fight for freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment. Notable educational institutions were founded out of the Great Awakening, like Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, and Dartmouth universities. The Great Awakening had an undeniable impact on Christianity. It resurrected religion in America at a time when it was on the decline and introduced ideas that would influence American culture for many years to come. Now, this is just the first Great Awakening. We will discuss the second and third Great Awakening in future seasons of this podcast. But for right now, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Please don't forget to give this video a thumbs up if you are watching on YouTube. If not, give me a follow on whichever podcast platform you are listening to. And to help this podcast grow, please consider sharing with a friend and follow me on social media. Next week, we're going to start exploring some of the military conflicts that break out before the French and Indian War. I hope to see you in the next episode.